Can't look at Randy Orton slithering. Oh, watch, like out, watch, out, watch out, watch out, watch out, watch out. Sports betting could take on a whole new dimension if the WWE gets its way. It's Monday, March 13th. I'm senior writer Owen Poindexter, and this is Front Office Sports Today. The WWE is attempting something that I'm still having trouble wrapping my head around. Fortunately, I've got some help on that front. I'm joined by CNBC media reporter Alex Sherman. Thanks for coming back on, Alex. My pleasure. Happy to be here, Owen. So you had a scoop about the WWE, about a rather unique initiative, maybe not truly unique, but anyway, what is the WWE company trying to do? Yeah, so what I reported a few days ago is that WWE is working with Ernst & Young, EY, an accounting firm, uh, to make a pitch to state regulators to allow legalized gambling on their scripted matches. Uh, The argument that WWE intends to use is that the Academy Awards has been legalized in certain states uh, with major gambling companies where you can go on FanDuel or DraftKings, depending on where you live, and actually bet on the Oscars. The Oscars, of course, are not scripted, but they are known results, uh, and and the the both the Academy Awards and the Emmys uh, work with accounting firms, the Emmys with EY, uh, the Oscars uh, uh, notably with Coopers, which became into the national consciousness a few years ago when there was that big uh, snafu around Moonlight and La La Land, and, and PwC was sort of blamed for that. Uh, I think people were became aware of that partnership at that point. But anyways, the general idea here is that uh, if, if known results are secured under lock and key, uh, gambling is okay because the public is uh, in a situation where it it is... Uh, perceived that these results will not leak, they are secret, they are only known by a few amount of people, those people will not bet on it, and therefore the general idea of gambling is fine. And so WWE wants to make that same argument here. Yes, this is scripted, but if only three people or however many people know what the results are, the wrestlers won't know, the production crew won't know, and therefore it should be safe to gamble on selected big events, you know, the main event at WrestleMania or whatever it may be. So, and... And as you said in your story, uh, the wrestlers would find out a few hours before the match who's going to win. Is there some idea that the the gambling would have to stop at some point, or could because like in a football game you can gamble like at halftime? Yes, right. So from what I'm told, uh, basically what would happen was be the gambling would would come to a conclusion. It would end before the match. Again, I don't know hours before the match, a day, whatever they decide it would be, um, and at that point. That's when the circle would open up uh, on, on, on a given match. And, and, and what I think would happen here, and, and again, we should preface this, that like we're a long ways away here from this actually happening. We can get into that later about the steps that would have to happen. But in the hypothetical, what, what I was told the WWE was conceiving here is that, you know, at least to begin with, one match would be the gambling match. And everybody would be betting on this match for months and then the betting would stop, and at that point, uh, the production crew, the wrestlers would know what would happen. Maybe uh, uh, you know the the uh, the announcers may know. I don't know exactly who was told ahead of time with WWE uh, in terms of what happens. But uh, then the match would go forward, and whoever put in their bets, they would be locked in. So it wouldn't be live betting like you were doing during a baseball game or a basketball game. That wouldn't be available. 
I have to think that this is one of those things where obviously there is the possibility for someone who does know, who is supposed to know, to, you know, tell a friend and have the friend place a bet. And they just have to accept a little bit of that happening unless someone is doing it in a really egregious way where, like, you know, some executive's wife puts a million dollars on on a wrestler. If you're just like, you know, thousand bucks here, thousand bucks there, and it's just like a drop in the bucket of all the betting I assume they're intending to drum up around this, I don't see how you catch that. I, I assume they're just going to be okay with a little bit of that happening. I mean, who knows? Um, I do think if there was ever any evidence of that, the fallout would be massive. So there's real downside to someone in the very tight circle. I mean, who would the tight circle be? Again, I'm just hypothetically speaking here. It would be Vince McMahon and it would be Triple H, Paul Levesque, who's in charge of creative. Like, theoretically, they might be the only two people that would know uh, a given result. And, like, yeah, maybe Paul Levesque's wife, Stephanie McMahon, who's Vince McMahon's daughter. Maybe she'd know. I don't know. Um, She's not involved in the leadership of WWE for the time being anymore. But uh, it's possible, at least, that the circle would be so small that the idea of this even getting out um, would be minuscule. And, and like you said, uh, you know, it, it, even if it did get out to one person or something, like the, the downside of jeopardizing uh, the McMahon family or the relationship with WWE or whoever was in charge would outweigh the upside. That said, I do think there's real uh, risk and several hurdles that need to be overcome before this could get into reality. So first, a state regulator would need to say, okay, we're fine with this idea. And different states do this differently. So WWE has already registered in the state of Indiana, but the state of Michigan wants uh, gambling companies themselves to come forward and say, hey, look, we're on board with this idea. And those talks have not happened yet. In other words, is FanDuel or is DraftKings or is BetMGM okay with this idea of legalizing gambling on a given match? The main difference that I can see between being okay with betting on the Oscars and being okay with betting on this, other than the fact that it's scripted, is the amount of time that that small circle of people would know what happened. So what I was told was that you know, let's say the Royal Rumble happens in January and the winner of the Royal Rumble goes on to face the World Wrestling uh, Entertainment Champion in April at the main event at WrestleMania. So then betting would happen for the next two plus months. Then it would shut down again a day or hours before the match and the match would happen. So that meant that that very small circle of people that would know would know for like over two months. That is a much bigger window of time than the Oscars, which are sealed, I don't know exactly how how long before, but, you know, it's like a day or whatever it is, uh, maybe less even. So that's a bigger risk there. And it's not like the WWE has the most pristine reputation of being, you know, above board with all of its doings. I mean, Vince McMahon just had to step down for paying off women with hush money, allegedly, for, for alleged sexual misconduct like months ago. So, and that's just the tip of the iceberg of the various different things WWE, WWF has had to deal with over the years. So, it is a big step, I would say, for the WWE to have to convince DraftKings, FanDuel, BetMGM, whoever the company may be, that, you know what, like, this is okay, 
And if state regulators are okay with it, you should be okay with it too. Yeah, fascinating. Well, we'll we'll be watching this one. Keep keep an eye on this one, Alex Forrest, because I want to know what happens here. Um, Alex Sherman, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks, Owen. Up next, I had a great chat with World Surf League CEO Eric Logan. We talked about the ins and outs of competitive surfing, which I had some very basic questions on, and some cool initiatives that the WSL is undertaking. We'll have that conversation right after this. Two thousand, two thousand eight, twenty twenty two. When it comes to the economy, those are some scary years. Dot com crash, housing crash, and the roller coaster we're going through right now. One thing is certain: it's a dangerous time to not know your numbers. But over thirty one thousand businesses have the confidence and clarity they need because they rely on Netsuite by Oracle, the number one cloud financial system. Netsuite gives you visibility and control of your financials, inventory, HR, planning, and budgeting, so you can manage risk, get reliable forecasts, and improve margins. Everything you need, all in one place. So, how do you prepare for uncertain times? The answer: Netsuite. Netsuite helps you identify rising costs, automate your business processes, and easily see where to save money. That's why 93% of customers say they improve their visibility and control when they upgraded to Netsuite. What are you waiting for? Right now, NetSuite is offering a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program. Head to netsuite.com slash frontoffice right now. netsuite.com slash frontoffice. netsuite.com slash frontoffice. I am joined now by the CEO of the World Surf League, Eric Logan. Eric, how's it going? Good, my friend. I went and I'm just uh, hanging out in rainy Los Angeles. It's like yeah. it's like the apocalypse here. Yeah. So let's uh, let's get to know the World Surf League. I think this will be new material for a lot of our listeners. So let's just start super basic. What is the World Surf League? How long you been around? What do you guys do other than surf? <laughs> well, we uh, we surf, which is great. Um, but um, think of it this way, you know, like every professional sport has an entity that crowns world champions, whether it's the NBA, NFL. Um, etc. We are the professional global organization that crowns the world champions. And I think a lot of our uh, listeners that are listening right now probably are familiar with who Kelly Slater is. Uh, and Kelly Slater has won 11 world titles. And I think a lot of people know he's the greatest surfer in the world. But we are the entity that actually crowns the world champions. So we're the ones that put on a global tournament uh, all year. It encompasses all the continents that we have, like everywhere from, from Brazil to Europe to North America to uh, South, uh, South Africa. And we have 10 events. And at the end of these events, we have a one-day playoff that you would see like most sports. And the winner of that one-day playoff called the WSL Rip Curl Finals is our world champion. Um, the first year we actually had professional surfing started in 1976 with a group of Australians coming to the North Shore of Oahu at Sunset Beach. So um, while I would say kind of under the radar for a long time, the professionalization of the sport that we've undertaken over the last five to six years has really sort of busted it into a little bit more of the mainstream now. Yeah. And to ask an even more basic question, how does one win a surfing competition? Like what, what are people judged on? Sure. Well, the, the way it works is that we put a number of surfers, sometimes it's two, sometimes it's three, sometimes it's four, depending upon the type of tournament it is. There is a 30 minute heat and each surfer in that heat 
gets a chance to surf as many waves as they want, the, they are judged on each wave on a scale of 1 to 10. And so 10 being a perfect ride, which is what we're all going for. Over the course of the heat, you can keep your top two scores. So a perfect heat would be a 20. And so what we see is we see scores ranging anywhere between, you know, a 12.3 to like an 18.5, if you will, in those ranges. Over the course of a tournament, you are in matchups, whether it's one man, two man or three man. And the winner of all those heats continue to advance like you would see in a March Madness bracket. It's a bracketed tournament. And then you get to a final heat and the winner of the final heat wins the tournament. And so whether it's pipeline or any of the 10 events that we do, whoever wins that final heat with the top score with their top two waves wins. It's pretty basic that way. And what does a nine or a 10 wave writing look like? Well, it's that's, you know, one of the things about the sport is the, the, the quote unquote controversy of the mythical 10. Um, the best way to sort of describe it is that our judges are always looking for power flow, um, depending upon the type of wave, if it's pipeline, a barreling wave where they're really deep inside the tube as most people would think about it or they're doing something extraordinary over the top of the lip you see these surfers these days looking like skate ramps if you will like skateboarders where they're doing full 180s and even 360s and we had our world champion two years ago actually execute a full backflip um, which was a 10. So um, the judges each day we have a tournament sort of say here's the criteria and the surfers are trying to do the best they can on those waves, which are very inconsistent at times, to try to get the highest score they can. And talk to me a bit about your growth in the last few years and some of your recent developments at the World Surf League. Yeah, the, the growth has been huge for the World Surf League. And I think uh, it, it's largely in part that our focus of really stitching together a lot of these tournaments and creating what we call and what we now have, which is the world's largest platform for professional surfing and that's what i say to our surfers all the time and now because we have centralized the distribution through worldsurfleague.com and partnered with youtube and all the different ways that we can you can consume this content we now have put it together where we're seeing the numbers reach in the millions in terms of the reach we have over the course of the year the reach we have over the course of the tournaments and it's truly global and it's one of the things that is we're really proud about that we've grown the sport you look at countries like Australia, Brazil, North America, J-Bay, Portugal, all across the world, we have surf fans and these pockets of surf fans that now have been aggregated together into one global community for the first time. That's allowed us from a business point of view to really start leveraging that to drive our ad model, uh, which has seen record revenues this past year. and We'll have another record this year. Yeah, very cool. In terms of actually filming the, the competitions, what sort of challenges and opportunities are based on the fact that this is all in the water? Yeah, huge, by the way. Um, one of the things we're most proud of is we undoubtedly have the most advanced water shooting technologies in the world. Uh, a lot of people will come to us and say, oh, we want to try this and do like the puck tracking as we saw, like the fox or the, the first downline you see sometimes on the NFL. Um, in our case, we're like, that doesn't work because we're actually out in the ocean and everything's got to be in the water. And so we've, we've mastered that to a large degree. And we actually partner a lot with a lot of other companies who come to us for resources. But we do everything internally, unlike a lot of professional sports where they will sub out the production, like the NFL or the NBA will, will allocate the rights to a broadcast partner. That broadcast partner then in turn will put on the broadcast. 
For quality control and execution, we do it all internally. So our entire broadcast infrastructure we do is inside of our organization, which gives us the ability to really have consistency and control when we actually get into the open ocean, which is a whole other animal in terms of shooting live sports. Yeah, yeah, I bet. And, and I understand that the WSL has uh, something of a, a gender equity movement going on right now. Can you, you talk to me a little bit about that? Yeah, it's, you know, look, uh, quality and inclusion is, is, a, is a really massive hallmark of what we have at the WSL. So back in 2018, we announced equal play, not, not pay parity, but equal pay, meaning women who are surfing uh, waves will be surfing and be getting the same paycheck as the men. And we started doing equal pay in 2019 at a break called Snapper Rocks with Italo Ferreira and uh, Caroline Marks. It was the first time that uh, a podium had two checks of the same amount for both men and women. So that is a, that's a powerful first step for us. And we think it was long overdue for our sport and for all sports. Also, um, in our sport, by the way, Owen, not all the women would surf the same waves. Um, like, for example, women were not competing at the Bonsai Pipeline, even though Blue Crush, the movie, really highlighted that. But they hadn't been competing on tour. They had, they had their own separate places to go. This year, um, and also last year, we actually have venue equality, where men and women are surfing together in all locations. And then we get to the final five championships. Five men and five women are competing for the world title on the same day, in the same conditions. So um, it's something that we talk about, but it's really more of a principle that we live by than it is sort of like waving banners for it. We, it's just how we, how we view the importance and the equality of what the sport is. Yeah, very cool. Eric Logan, thanks so much for joining us on the podcast. I appreciate you, Owen. Thank you. That's it for today. Thanks so much for listening. Send us your thoughts and questions at today at frontofficesports.com. We always love hearing from you, and we'll see you tomorrow.